All right. You guys have got some energy today. That's some good singing. I love those songs. Love the opportunity that we have as the church to take communion together. Um, just beautiful uh, that Jesus set this for us um, 2,000 years ago to remember him. Well, um, I do want to welcome you to Impact this morning. Uh, if you're new here, I'm John, one of our pastors, and we are in week four of our series, The Holy Wild. Um, and if you're new here, we're glad that you're here, aren't we? Aren't we glad that we are glad to have you here. Um, and we're in a story, uh, The Holy Wild, we're in week four of The Holy Wild, and we're in a story about a guy named Abram. He also had a different name. Yes, he had a name change. He had two names. Anyone have two names? You've got more than one name. You've got nicknames, pet names. This is a, Abram was also known as Abraham. So we're going to refer to him as Abram and Abraham. And if you're new to church, and maybe you're new to the Bible, maybe you don't even own a Bible, we're in a book of the Bible that's at the very beginning. It's the book of Genesis. And we're in chapter 14 today and talking about Abram, this guy who was the father of many nations. Um, in fact, Abram is the father of three of the largest religions in the world, Christianity, uh, Judaism, and Islam. That's right. Abram uh, was the patriarch for all of them. What we believe, what's different about Christianity, this is just a little side note, what's different about Christianity is that Abram is the uh, great-grandfather of a guy by the name of Judah. And from the line of Judah came the line of David. And from the line of David came Jesus Christ. And we in the church believe that Jesus Christ of the line of Abram is the son of God. He, he is fully God, fully human, that he came God incarnate 2,000 years ago to live a sinless life and to die a sinner's death on the cross for you and for me that we could have new life. And it's under his lordship that we have righteousness, that we have freedom, that we have forgiveness. Is somebody here this morning? Abram, all coming from this guy, Abram. And we also believe here in the church as we're, we're reading through this text, this is more than just like a fable. This isn't fiction. This is fact to us. Yes. We believe in the inspired word of God. Amen. We believe that Abram was a real guy who actually lived four to 500 years before even the law came. And he lived this life that was full of heartache and wins and losses. He lived a life full of sin and righteousness. He lived a life that was full of sacrifice and blessing. He made great decisions and he made really bonehead, stupid decisions. All right, so pretty much Abraham is us. He's you and me. I feel like I'm, as I'm reading through the text, I was actually in our life group this last week. We were talking about Abram and we we're talking about some of his decisions. And we were like, someone in our group was like, I actually love, I actually love that he's made all these dumb decisions because I'm like, I, 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 we make all these dumb decisions. There's grace for you. There's grace for me. Best of all is Abram's life just embodies God's favor his grace, his goodness, his free gift to us. Today we're in chapter 14. Last week we were in chapter 13. I can count. 
Okay, so I'm really good there. Thank you. You know, and the week before we were in chapter 12, we've been following through this story of Abram. And in chapter 14, we have this story uh, that begins with a war, but it, it continues into a topic that we're gonna be talking about today. And it's probably one of the most loaded topics arguably in the church. It's one that for decades, maybe even centuries has been a source of angst. People get angry when pastors talk about it. Um, they get all kinds of angsty and agitated and they're like, don't talk to me about that anymore. Can you guess what we're talking about today? Not COVID, no, not, it's not. So, or politics, so, but those would count. No, we're talking about giving today. Giving, tithing, money. Um, we're, well, we're sort of talking about giving and tithing and money. I would actually contend today that the text and really most of what scripture has to say about money in general isn't actually about money. In fact, when we talk about giving, giving is kind of a secondary character in the story of tithing. Really, tithing is a secondary character um, to really the heart issue that we're going after today. I was reading a lot this week about finances, money, and giving, studying what the Bible has to say about it and what Jesus had to say about it. And I found out this interesting fact, uh, a couple of different interesting facts through scripture. Jesus' parables, uh, Jesus gave 39 parables in his earthly ministry and uh, 11 of those, over 25%, had finances or stewardship involved. Now, not all of those 11 were about finances. Again, there was a different heart matter that Jesus was getting at when he talks about stewardship, when he talks about our pocketbook, our wallet. There's over 2,000 verses that mention money, tithing, or terms on wealth throughout the Bible. You think is important to God? It's important to God because it's important to us and it's a draw for us. There are all these places where there are these terms used to explain spiritual truths. And so we're in chapter 14 and in chapter 14, we see Abram give the first tithe that's recorded in scripture. But before we get into that part of the story, I want you to open up your Bible. If you have your Bible, we're in, uh, we're in Genesis chapter 14. Um, you can follow along on the screen, but I would encourage you maybe to open up your phone. If you don't have your actual Bible here, open up your phone, download the Bible app and read along for yourself. Um, we're, actually, we're actually gonna do a little bit of Bible study today throughout, this, throughout the message. And I'm gonna share a little bit about some Bible study that we did as a, as a staff this week. And so I want you to read from your version. I'm reading from the NIV, but uh, there's different, a lot of different English versions or translations of scripture. So read along. Um, and before we get to the read along part, I'm going to, uh, to talk about what happens, kind of the setup in Genesis chapter 14. All right, so Genesis chapter 14, the first 13 verses are about a war. And they use a lot of complicated names, a lot of complicated countries or people groups. And so we're going to break this up um, into a story form, all right? So uh, Genesis chapter 14 starts with the first war recorded in scripture. And there's two teams. There's team one and there's four kings or four people groups that are about team one. All right, and I'm calling team one the bad guys, all right? 
This is uh, people from Shinar, Eleser, Elam, and Goyim. And the main leader of the bad guys is King Kedaloamer. And so I'm just gonna call him King K because I don't wanna keep saying that. So King K is the, the kind of the ringleader of this first group, all right? Second group, there's five other countries and two of them are Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm not calling these the good guys, I'm calling these the less bad guys. So we've got bad guys and we've got less bad guys, okay, in this war. And team two, they have been under the oppression of King K over here for 12 years, the scripture says. Over 12 years, they have been under his rule and under his reign. And so King K is getting greedy. This is what war is really all about. <laughs> so King K is getting real greedy and he's starting to go after other people groups, not just these five over here. He's going and he's, he's going at war and, and defeating all of these other people groups. And while he's doing that, they come together, this team too, the less bad guys, and they, they come together and they're like, this is a great time to attack. This is a great time to throw a rebellion. This is a great time to rise up. I've got Hamilton in my head right now. Rise up when you're living on your knees, you rise up. You know what I'm saying? So this is what they're doing, all right? They are ready to throw a rebellion. So they do, and they get their butt whooped, okay? These guys, team two comes and they throw a rebellion and it says in the text that King K and his cronies, they rout team two, and they actually take people prisoner. They take their possessions, their goods, their food, and some of their people. Now, if you remember in chapter 12, what Ryan preached on last week, Abram and Lot in chapter 12 separated. They went different ways. Abram went one way, Lot went another, and Lot chose this land near what? Sodom and Gomorrah. Wait, that's team two, the team that was just beat. And it says in the text that Lot and his family and his possessions were captured in this battle, in this war. So here's where we're gonna pick up our story. A guy escapes and he goes to Abram and he tells Abram, hey, you're not gonna believe it. Your, your nephew, Lot, he's been captured. And I, I know we, we talked last week about boundaries. We talked about separation. And one of the cool things about boundaries that we see right here, even in the text, is that while Abram separated from Lot, he still cared for Lot. He actually comes to Lot's rescue multiple times. You see, when you have set up certain boundaries with people, it doesn't necessarily mean that you don't care about them anymore. In fact, Abram does the contrary. Once he's separated from Lot, Lot gets into trouble and Abram is like, oh, no, no, no. And so he starts to come, and this is where we, we're gonna pick up on our story. Chapter 14, again, if you wanna follow along on your text, um, on your phone, or we've got the, the text up on the screen. When Abram heard that his relative, Lot, had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, 318 doesn't really sound like a lot, does it? I don't really know that it was a lot. I love that this is pervasive through scripture, that God uh, over and over and over again um, creates victories for his people that seem like there's no way possible that they should get victory. In fact, when I see 318, I, my mind immediately goes, and I think the people of Israel, this could have been a similar thing, that, that my mind immediately goes to the book of Judges where Gideon was told by God, keep whittling down, keep whittling down, 300 men against what? 10,000, thousands, and they won. Abram, 
Abram raises up these 318 men and it really doesn't seem like he should have victory over four or five other kings on team one. King K, I almost said Coach K, that's a little different. Uh, I like Krzyzewski, he's not one of the bad guys, I'm sorry. So King K over here, it doesn't seem like Abram should actually have victory, but he, he gets all of these trained men he, born in his household and he goes and he pursues them as far as Dan. And listen to this, during the night, Abram divided his men, had this plan of attack to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating uh, king K and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Uh, most theologians believe this is the first mention, uh, almost in a prophetic way, the first mention of the Eucharist, the communion. He brought out the bread and wine, he was a priest of God most high. This is the first time someone's called a priest in scripture. Melchizedek is the first priest of God most high. We don't know a whole lot about him here in the text, but Hebrews, if I, I would love to do a deep dive on the guy Melchizedek, I, I can't really today. Hebrews talks a ton about Melchizedek, how Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. He's the better Melchizedek. He's the better priest, the better one that brings the bread and the wine, the better one that brings the, the blessing but Melchizedek comes out and he's the priest of God most high and he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high creator of heaven and earth and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a 10th of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom with a raised hand, I've sworn an oath to the Lord God, most high creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal. Remember the, that phrase right there. So that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Church today, I wanna to go through uh, four things that I'm pulling from the text about giving. Four things I'm pulling from the text about generosity, about this act of giving. And, and some of it has to do with money and some of it is much deeper than money. And I wanna start with the blessing. I wanna start with the blessing. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brings out the bread and the wine and he is the priest of God most high and he blesses Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high. Do you know what blessing is? Blessing is a, blessing in both Hebrew and Greek in the scripture is translated in a lot of different ways. In some versions, it's translated as happiness, like this elation. In some places, it's translated as this deep found joy. I think really one of the most uh, powerful translations of blessing is favor. It's, it's grace, it's, um, it's like the favor of God, the, the image of God, the countenance of God on other people. God gives blessing here and he continues to give blessing. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, it's the, the first place, so two chapters earlier, it's where God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, through you, 
all peoples will be blessed. Up to this point, this hasn't happened. All of the blessing that's happened for Abram has been kind of down a cul-de-sac. It's been a stop at Abram. This is the kind of a turning point in Abram's life where he starts turning down, getting wealthier for his own sake, and he starts giving blessing to someone else. It's the first time Abram's able to live out this offer or into offer blessing living out chapter 12. 12. There's something else that happens here in chapter 14. Um, and as a pastor, it can kind of feel a bit awkward to, to preach on, on this because um, it feels like it's uh, um, almost uh, selfish. <laughs> and, and honestly, a lot of people within the church and outside of the church are like, okay, here's another pastor talking about money. They just want more money. They want us to send them more money. They wanna get rich. They wanna get, and, and, and certainly you can look at a lot of different pastors that are exploiting the tithe. Here's what I wanna talk about here as we're talking about the blessing. God has used, and he started it in the book of Genesis. He has used this kind of mutual blessing throughout scripture. And it started here with Abram. And notice here in the text, Abram receives a blessing from Melchizedek, the priest. So the priest pours into Abram and Abram return blesses the priest. Throughout the Levitical law, this is a continued way of mutual community support from pastors and shepherds to the people and from the people to the shepherds and the pastors. It's something that I've done uh, that we are all a part of where we're giving honor where honor is due. And there's this mutual uh, support that happens here. In the early church, it's the same. The people of God are called to radical generosity to care for each other. In fact, in the early church, they go above and beyond. People sell like all their possessions to give to the needs of the community. It's, they are blessed by God in order to be a blessing. You've heard, um, you've heard what Jesus said with the golden rule. Did you know that Jesus made up the golden rule? That it started with him? It's interesting to me that we talk about the golden rule even in the secular world, we talk about it at school. Jesus came up with that. Do to others what you would have them do to you. We've taken it, when, we, when we're talking about blessing, something that we've said over the last several years as we're talking about giving is what we call the platinum rule. And it's do for others what others have done for you. I, I think there's something powerful about considering what people have done for us in order to consider how God wants us to be a blessing, a channel of his goodness to other people. Blessed to be a blessing. The second thing I wanna talk about here, and it kind of goes right together, is the tithe. This is the first time that we see the tithe in scripture. Abram gave a tenth of everything. Uh, the word in Hebrew or the term in Hebrew, it means literally a part or a, one part out of 10. Uh, one part out of 10. Tithe means one tenth. And it's found throughout, especially the Old Testament. Uh, we see it in the Le Levitical law. One of the passages that I love um, that Jake kind of brought to our attention in our devotional reading. Have you been doing the devotional reading? I really hope you're doing the devotional reading um, because we're a church that not only believes in gathering together uh, as a church on the weekend, but we're a church that wants our, uh, our lives spiritually to be... Um, edified 
throughout the week, right? Getting in circles, getting in groups, talking about God's word together, opening up these texts. And Jake mentioned he actually referenced this part in the devotional uh, for this, re- this week. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. This is one of the only times, maybe the only time in scripture that God says this, test me in this. It's like God's pulling you up to his side. And he's like, just try me out, bro. Just see if I won't, see if I won't, just try me on for size. Test me. I can do it. I actually wanna, what I want to do the rest of this, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not enough room to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields um, will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. The tithe, bring in the tithe. I hear this um, sentiment though in the, in the church today um, and maybe you, um, maybe you resonate with this. I hear this sentiment about tithing that like, okay, tithing was something that was done in the law. You know, it was a part of the old covenant, but in the new covenant, in the, in the church, the, the, in the early church and now the, the, the day that we're living in, the tithe isn't relevant anymore. Have you heard that before? I've heard it before. I've heard some of you talk about that. And I just, I, I wanna kindly say, that's just not true. What we find in the New Testament is we find this text in the New Testament where Jesus is talking about tithing. He's actually busting the chops of the religious leaders. And in Matthew chapter 23, he's giving all of these woes to the religious leaders. And he says this, he says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a 10th of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And so what we do is we often stop there and we're like, see, what Jesus really cares about is justice, caring for the poor. You know, like faithfulness. And they're not doing that. It's not about, it's not about the money anymore. It's not about tithing. It never really was about the money. It never really was about tithing. It's about the heart. And so what Jesus says here, you should have practiced the latter what does he say there? Without neglecting the former. Jesus doesn't abolish the tithe. He upholds it. He upholds it. Not only that, but the first time the tithe is given, the example of the tithe is right here in Genesis chapter 14. And you know how many years before the law was given, this tithe was given? Is it 400 to 500 years before the law? Abram sets this example of the tithe. Tithe means one-tenth. You can give, you actually, you can give and not tithe. You can't give, uh, you can't give less than 10% and still call it a tithe. It just doesn't, it, it's, the tithe is actually 10%, all right? That's just, so when God calls us to tithe, it's the, it's the 10%. Here's something else though, you can actually tithe, tithe and you can miss the gift of generosity. Amen. Did you know that? I've told, you, I've told you this church, like, and, and as I'm preaching through this text, and we're gonna get into a couple other two last points, this is way more than just about your money. This is about your heart. This is about your relationship with God. A generous spirit isn't even about the 10th. It's about the act of giving. I love, um, do you love it when uh, things outside of the church, things outside of the Bible, 
say, scientists, medical professionals, um, uh, politicians, leaders in the secular world, I love when they say things that back up scripture. Do you? I love this. I mean, sometimes they'll, they'll say things and they'll make this statement about what is healthy for, for someone. And I'm like, well, I mean, that's not novel. God said that a long time ago. But if you wanna say that you coined it or you figured it out because of psychology and testing and all, I love when, when truth from outside of scripture backs up. And here's, here's a case in point. I actually went to some medical journals this week and I was reading, and these are secular medical journals. I was reading about the benefits of giving. And this is what they said. Giving for your health lowers blood pressure. Um, it lowers stress levels. Uh, it creates less anxiety and depression. Um, it increases self-esteem. It's a catalyst for gratitude. I immediately go to like Philippians chapter four, where Paul is contending with him. He's like, don't, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. He's talking about thanksgiving, um, offering things to God, and don't be anxious about those things, but think on things from above. And he's talking about all these different things and it matches with what we're talking about here. You see, this, there's, a, there's a cycle that's created when we give and return a tithe back to God. God has blessed us and we return the tithe back to God. And there's another cycle that that creates and it's the generosity gratitude cycle. Church, I believe that as you are generous, as you move into a life of generosity, that it creates in us lives of gratitude to God. You can't, I don't think you can actually uh, give long-term back to God and, and, uh, and not be filled with gratitude for what he does. Generosity creates gratitude and then gratitude creates generosity and generosity creates more gratitude and the cycle continues. I wanna say it this way, grateful people are gracious people. Do you know people like that? Grateful people are gracious people. Amen. The third thing that I wanna talk about from the text today is this vow that Abram makes. I love this part. The king of Sodom says to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. So Abram has just been blessed. He's responded to the blessing with a tithe, the first tithe that we ever see to the first priest in all of scripture. And, he's, and, and then the king of Sodom comes out, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with a raised hand, I've sworn an oath to the Lord God most high that I will accept nothing from you. Uh, Abram's grandson, Jacob, does the same thing in Genesis chapter 28. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking uh, and, I, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. It almost feels kind of like an icky um, vow, doesn't it? Like if you do all of this, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It feels like Jacob is like having this moment with God where he's like, Lord, his back's against the wall. Lord, if you do all of these things for me, then I will love you. And it kind of is that. Jacob is making an if-then statement. This is right here in the text. He's making an if-then statement. And I love that it kind of matches what the Lord says in Malachi. Go ahead, test me. Test me in this. 
Then the Lord will be my God. This is the first time Jacob in scripture changes it from the God of my father and my grandfather, Abraham and Isaac. And he changes it to the God will be my God. And this stone I've set up as a pillar will be, the how, the God, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a 10th. Swears an oath, makes a vow. Um, as I'm reading here in, you know, next week, Jason's gonna be preaching from Genesis chapter 15. And if your Bible is similar to mine, the top of Genesis chapter 15 says this, the Lord's covenant with Abram. This is one of the five main covenants throughout scripture, the, the, the Abrahamic covenant. And so I began to ask this question this week. I was like, this is interesting. Several verses before God makes a covenant with Abram, Abram gives for the first time the 10th and he makes a vow to God. So I, I asked the question, God, I wonder, um, I wonder, and by the way, Bible study, this is how Bible study starts. It starts with asking questions of the text and then going searching out of curiosity. Okay, God, what do you say here? What, what, what is, what's happening here? And so I asked this question, how connected is this vow and this gift with God's covenant? So I went back to the five major covenants throughout scripture. The first one is the Noahic covenant. We've already been there in Genesis chapter eight and nine. And so I went back to Noah and the ark and the flood. And in Genesis chapter eight, what happens is the waters begin to recede from this great flood. And Noah and his family and the ark, they're rested on, on solid ground and they come off of the ark. And what do they do? They build an altar and they sacrifice to the Lord. And it says that it's pleasing to God. And in chapter nine, do you know what happens in chapter nine? God makes a covenant with Noah and the people of the earth. Fast forward, Genesis chapter 14, Abram gives to Melchizedek and he's blessed by Melchizedek. In chapter 15, God makes a covenant with Abram for his, that, uh, that extends throughout his lineage. Uh, fast forward a little bit. There's the, the third most important or third of these five major covenants in scripture is the Mosaic covenant. And you fast forward to Exodus chapter 24. And in Exodus chapter 20, Moses ascends to Mount Sinai and he gets the law. You know, he gets the 10 commandments and he gets a bunch of these other parts of the law. And in chapter 24, he comes down and the people of Israel, they make a sacrifice to the Lord. They vow to the Lord and the Lord cuts the Mosaic covenant. Fast forward a little bit further, the Davidic covenant is the fourth. And in 2 Samuel chapter six and 2 Samuel chapter seven, what do you think happens? 2 Samuel chapter six, David makes an altar before the Lord and he sacrifices to the Lord. And in chapter seven, what does God do? He makes a covenant with David. David's son, Solomon, this isn't one of the major covenants, but the same thing happens. At, at Solomon's inauguration, he sacrifices 10,000 animals, like thousands more than anyone else has. And what does God do in the next chapter? God says, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give you anything. And Solomon asks for wisdom. The fifth, and major, the fifth major covenant throughout scripture is this one, and it's the new covenant. And you know about the new covenant. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that what did God do? Do you see a theme here? 
God gave everything so that we could have the righteousness of Jesus. When we say what? When we say, when we declare, actually Romans says this, Paul says this in Romans. When we declare that Jesus is what? Lord, that means he's in control. That means we submit to him. That means we give everything to him, all kind of ownership. You see, every single covenant in scripture includes a vow, a sacrifice, and a gift. Um, I told you, that, so this week we got together as a staff and we, I think it was on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, we sat down and read the text together, several pastors on our staff. And, um, and we just asked questions of the text and started talking about what we see here in the text. And church, I'm telling you, if you're not in a Bible study, if you're not in a life group, you need to be. In this part of the text, I struggled big time. In fact, I literally said, I really, I really don't like what Abram does here. <laughs> it, feels really, um, it feels really like independent. It feels like I, I don't want you to be able to say I made Abram rich. I want to be able to say I made Abram rich. I was like, it feels kind of arrogant that he would say, decline a gift from the king of Sodom. Why does he do this? And I had other people around me, around the circle that they were like, John, I don't... I don't think that's what that means. Have you ever had someone say that to you about scripture? If you haven't, then you might not be in a group where people are talking honestly about what they're dealing with the scripture. And so we're sitting in there and I was like, I just don't really like it. And, and they said, I, I don't think that's what that means. And so what I did was I, I took a conundrum in my own heart and in my own head. And I used that to, to pique curiosity and to go into study. I've heard from lot, several of you throughout this series as we've been preaching throughout the book of Genesis. I don't know how you, how do you do that? How do you do that? You know how we do this? In humility, we get with other people. We open up God's word. We ask questions. We submit to what God says. And then we go and we search for truth right here in God's word. I found something uh, that is just, unbelievably exciting to me this week because of that, because of the problem that I had with the text. And it's found right here in, in this vow. But Abram said to the king of Sodom with a raised hand, I've sworn an oath to the Lord, the God most high creator of heaven and earth that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal. I want, you, I want to ask you a question. Not even a thread or the strap of a sandal. Does that mean anything to you? It didn't mean anything to me. It probably doesn't mean anything to you because 4,000 years ago, how that would have been used in their context is totally different than how it would be used today. So if I, for example, if I were to say to you, one fish, two fish, you would say, you know, it's Dr. Seuss. If I were to say a blue Christmas, what do you think of? You think of Elvis, you think of music. Now, a thousand years from now, 2,000 years from now, 4,000 years from now, if someone says one fish, two fish, they're not saying red fish, blue fish. No one's knowing about Dr. Seuss, probably. And this is the same thing, same thing here in the text. So when we do Bible study and we dig into God's word, we ask questions and then we dig into what did that mean in their context? This phrase, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal was used in two places in Near East official ceremonies. And there were two ceremonies where it's found in Ugaritic. I don't read Ugaritic. I doubt that you do either. 
So there are two places outside of scripture where this phrase is used and it's used number one in a divorce ceremony and number two in the breaking of a, uh, of a partnership with someone else. You know what Abram is saying here? He's vowing to God and he is divorcing himself from everything else. Church, this is the heart of giving. This is the heart of tithing, of blessing, of understanding the gospel of grace. It's you vowing your heart to the Lord and saying, God, all other affections, all other idols, I divorce myself from all those things. See, Abram is saying so much more than what, we, than what meets the eye here in the text. He's saying to the king of Sodom, no way. The only person that, that gets my allegiance from this point forward is God. The only person that gets my affection, the only person that possesses my heart is God. It's not you, it's not anyone else, it's not all of these other idols, it's not all of these other affections, it's God. Which takes us to our last point. God is the possessor, the possessor. I told you we were studying scripture together and I told you to get your phone out to, to read through the passage. And I'd love for you to look at it now, to look at whatever version you use on your phone and to look at this part of the text. He blessed Abram, Genesis chapter 14, verse 19 and verse 22. He blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And then Abram uses the same language in verse 22. He's made a vow, he's made an oath to the Lord most high, creator of heaven and earth. So we're studying the Bible together. And have you done this in, in a life group or a Bible study? We're studying the Bible together. And someone on our staff, Ryan said, ah, that's not what my version says. Have you ever had someone do that? It's not what my version says. Let me show you what his version says. And blessed be Abram saying blessed. And he blessed Abram saying, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Abram says it again, possessor of heaven and earth. I thought it was really odd to me that when I was studying this text, that right here in the middle of a war, someone gives, makes a vow, makes a covenant coming off of it with God. Until I began to ask the question, what is war all about? Why do people go to war? Why do they go to war? Power, land, people, possessions. Literally the first war that's recorded in scripture, I don't think it's coincidental that here in the first war uh, that's mentioned in scripture, we have the response from Abram that says, you know what? You're going after everything, in greed, you're going after more and more and more and more and more. Greed is actually something that, teaches, that Jesus teaches on almost more than any other topic. Why? Because it's so insidious and it's so nuanced. We've had tons of people, I've, I can't tell you how many people I've had come and confess to me and talk through as a pastor, uh, confess having adultery, looking at pornography. You know, you know whether or not you're doing those things, right? Come on. <laughs> like that's, that's a, if it's not your spouse, it is adultery, okay? That's, you know what I mean? It's pretty easy to notice. I've never had anyone come up to me and be like, pastor, I'm really struggling with greed. 
Yet we still, and we, no one's going to war with anyone, but we still have the same thing that King K and all these other kings had in them. And that's this, this lust for more, for more power, for more possessions, for more stuff. And right here in the text, Abram and Melchizedek, what are they doing? They're ascribing their loyalty, their allegiance to God, the who? Possessor of heaven and earth. Here's the question for you today. Who possesses your heart? I really, I know like, as I talk about giving, I'm supposed to talk about possessions and finances and money. There's a deeper question that I alluded to at the very beginning. And the question is who possesses you? And how you answer that question makes all the difference for the rest of your life. Your interactions with people, how you give, generosity, sin, idolatry, struggle, submission to other things. Who possesses you? Lord is just not the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the possessor of the heaven and the earth. He possesses. Uh, Dave Ramsey says it this way, the wealthy person who is ruled, who is possessed by his stuff is no more free than the debt ridden consumer. No more free than the debt-ridden consumer, ruled by his stuff. Aren't, aren't we ruled by stuff a lot? You know, um, I, I really, church, I don't think money, um, I've been thinking about money a lot this last week. I don't think money, now you could disagree with me and that would be fine. We could talk about it afterward, but I don't think money is an idol. All right. um, I think money is a map to our idols. I think depending on how, what is easiest for you, if it's easier for you to spend money on clothing than it is to be generous and give to God, that might just, it's not the money that's the idol. The money directs you to your idol, which is image. You know, um, here's mine. I do not have, I've never had a problem with saving money. Some of you are probably chuckling. I, I like saving money. I like having an emergency fund and a secondary emergency fund. And I like the plans and I like the charts and I like the Excel sheets and I like everything in its place. Why? Money isn't the thing. Comfort and faith and security is the thing. That's the idol for me. For some of you, you don't have a problem spending money on clothing or cars or stuff. It's on a bunch of books. And on education and academics, why? Because the, Im- the, the image isn't the thing. It's what you know is your idol. Knowledge is power. How I wield knowledge is the thing that possesses me. Money, and Jesus says it this way. You know this, some of you know this verse. Jesus talks about money and he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or another way of flipping it, if you wanna find where your heart is, follow the treasure. We've said this all, follow the money. Most of the time we, when we say that, we're cynical. Like, follow the money. It's true in our hearts. Money isn't the idol. Money directs us. It's an arrow to our idols, to, what's, to what has our affection, to what possesses us. Um, my kids, as they were learning how to talk, so, I mean, their first words like mama and dada, but do you know what word I never had to teach them? Mine. 
or no. Yes, no, <laughs> yeah. Obstinance, I'm gonna arch my back, is about me. Yes, and mine. And uh, one of my favorite scenes in a Disney Pixar movie is this one from, uh, from uh, Finding Nemo. We're all, isn't this so, cl- I just love this scene. I, so clever what they do with these seagulls. And this is the human condition. Mine, 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 possession. A desire to, to own or control, not willing to share things or lend things with others. This is what possessive means. Robert Morris says this, church, God is the only one that can provide everything you need. Money doesn't help people. God helps people. Money doesn't answer all of your problems. God, God, that's his position. He's the possessor. I'll never forget about five years ago, we were um, standing with our kingdom donors as we were building this facility and none of what you see was in here. It was kind of the frame at the time. So masonry had been done and, and, um, and concrete had been laid and, and we were standing, we had just walked through the building as, uh, as construction was happening. And we, we were out here um, in the parking lot. There was no parking lot. We were out here walking through the dirt and some of you gave uh, sacrificially above and beyond. And it was in part due to this platinum rule. You were thinking about what people had done for you and you're thinking about what you can do for other people. And I'll never forget what happened with this, with this um, kingdom donor. They, they donated several million dollars to this project, to this building, to this facility. And we were standing right out here um, in the dirt. And I noticed that he started to cry and I was like, I don't know, is the masonry not good? Or, I mean, I know it's dirt. We're gonna have plants. It's gonna look nicer than this. So I'm, I'm thinking, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know really what he's upset about is this. And this is what came out of his mouth. I can't stop thinking about the lives that will be transformed by Jesus here. It wasn't about the money. And I don't think Abram's gift, it was about submitting to the possessor of all things and being blessed in order that he could be a blessing. Church, I wanna invite you, you can be a blessing. Your gift, just like hundreds and thousands of other people who have gone before us, your gift can make a way for other people. We have, um, we've had this up on the screen. We have this up on the screen almost all the time before, serve, before and after services. In fact, it'll be up on the screen after services. We have people that sacrificially give, not because it's about money, but it's, be, it's about making ministry and mission happen. Our students this weekend will go to a retreat weekend, a big chill, and next weekend, and students will get saved because of gifts that have been given to make ministry possible. You can give online, you can text to give, you can, if you even still have checks, some of you are like, what are checks? What's a checkbook? Ask someone with gray hair or someone who's bald like me and we'll explain it to you later. Uh, there's a lot of ways that you can give. And I wanna bring that, I wanna bring that statement back up from, I can't stop thinking about the lives that will be transformed by Jesus here. Church, you can make the same statement. 
I can't stop thinking about the lives that will be transformed by Jesus here. You can be a blessing just like Abram was. Giving isn't just something that we do around here. It's about who, it's who we are. Submitting ourselves to the possessor of all things. So God, would you do that work in us? Would you do that work in us? Help us to make a way for the next generation. Help us to be obedient with our tithe, that we would be blessed in order to be a blessing. God, help us ultimately this morning to submit to you this vow that Abram took to part from all other gods and to submit to you the possessor of all things. God, I pray that that would be our heart posture in everything that we do from this place. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming today. You're, you are commissioned to go. We'll see you next week.